Hi and welcome to Terror Total Climate Podcast. I'm Kirti Manjan your host. Today we'll be talking about climate justice as a preview to our Intro to Climate Justice workshop on March 13 that we are hosting in partnership with the UC Center for Climate Justice and BLAB. The workshop will be an exciting weekend-long interactive experience for working professionals and activists interested in working towards climate justice in North, Central, South America and the Caribbean. Apply now. Our guest host today is Alisa Gisson. Alisa graduated from Terradordu last year and is a product manager, community leader, organizer and social entrepreneur. She's currently a product manager at Block Power, which is a climate tech startup supporting underserved communities of color. Alyssa also organizes a mutual aid network in Brooklyn and is fighting for a green new deal for public housing alongside Sunrise Movement activists and public housing tenants. We are really excited to introduce a diverse group of voices and perspectives with us today to talk about climate justice. Our first guest is Tracy Osborn, who's a director of the University of California Center for Climate Justice. Her research focuses on the social and political economic dimensions of climate change mitigation in tropical forests and the role of indigenous peoples, the politics of climate finance, global environmental governance, and climate equity and justice. Raj Agarwal, our second guest, is president of Provoke. A communications firm and certified B Corp that's rooted in equity and empathy-driven work. He also chairs the Climate Justice Task Force, the B Corp Climate Collective, a group of certified B corporations working together to take action on the climate emergency. Alongside the University of Oxford's Business School and B Lab, Raj and his team at Provoke their research effort to build a climate justice playbook for business. You'll hear more about this today. Our last guest is Yang Hong, who is the founder of Shoshin Insights, a data and engineering consultancy practicing to minimize harm and work for humans. She also leads a climate justice learning group as part of Work on Climate, a positive action-oriented Black community for people serious about climate work. The Climate Justice Learning Group has put together a Climate Justice 101 guide, a beginner-friendly guide that offers a starting point for folks wondering what climate justice is actually about. what it looks like in practice and why it's so important. Over to you, Alyssa. Thank you, Kirti. So we're hosting our climate justice workshop to drive action. First, by helping folks get a lay of the land and then finding their lane within the movement for climate justice. Throughout the workshop and this episode, we hope the dialogue can frame challenges, insights, and questions that spark inspiration for you in your climate justice journey. As with any complex and layered topic, this conversation might unearth more questions than answers, but we hope by continuing to listen deeply, ask tough questions, and sit with the discomfort of no cut and dry answers, we can start to address some of the root causes of injustice in our world alongside climate change. All right. So hello Tracy, Raj and Yang. I'm very excited to be here talking with you and and excited to just jump right in. The first question is You know, I find that everyone's personal entry point to understanding injustice and climate change and deciding to act like their journey to do that is so varied. Could each of you share how you came to care about climate justice? So, what got you interested in the intersection between climate change and social justice 
and how has that brought you to work on today? And if we could go Tracy and then Raj and then Yang, that'd be awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Alyssa. So I'd say that I first got turned on to social justice issues in college and through regular visits to Guyana, the country where my parents are from. And in Guyana, I could see up close the injustice playing out in the country. And this was injustice linked to a history of colonialism, resource extraction, and environmental degradation. And in particular, I witnessed the major contradictions between environmental degradation and economic development. The economic development that the World Bank and some of the government leaders said were necessary for poverty alleviation in the country, but also the contradiction with environmental protection, which was desperately needed in Guyana's vast, biodiverse, and culturally important rainforest. So Guyana is part of the Guyana Shield. It's one of the most intact areas of the Amazon rainforest, but it's also threatened by large-scale logging and mining. It's a low-lying country with 90% of the population living along the coast. It has a a seawall that's quite old that protects the, the coast from sea level rise. But despite the vulnerability to sea level rise, ExxonMobil recently discovered and started to exploit oil offshore. The climate change impacts of sea level rise will have devastating impacts for this country. Yet, given the few development options the government of Guyana with also financial support from the World Bank has decided to pursue this development path based on fossil fuels. And fossil fuels, of course, we know is one of the main drivers of climate change. So these types of contradictions really come into sharp relief in the context of Guyana, but also in other countries. So I see climate justice as the antidote to these contradictions because it aligns well-being and sustainable development with environmental protection and social justice. And it provides a very different economic model, one based on regenerative and circular systems. Awesome. Thank you, Tracy. Raj, could you go next? So how I came about to this work is I've been focusing the work of our firm on racial equity for uh, a little bit over five and a half years at this point. And I've really found a number of ways where we can be in service to perpetuating racial equity. And in particular, through our work as a business and being part of the B Corp movement, uh, which we've been a part of since its founding in 2008. And so we were invited early on by B-Lab to help them on their racial equity journey. And that has come in a variety of forms of how business is perpetuating these systemic inequities. And three years ago, the B Corp Climate Collective was formed, and it was a group of B Corps coming together to do collective action on climate change. And part of the reason I was invited was because of this work that I've been doing with that group of businesses. And some of these are pretty well-known businesses like Patagonia and Ben & Jerry's, uh, Method, Gap, things of those nature. And we found that they were not, like most businesses, which is complicit to the tremendous impacts of climate change, were not centering the voices of the people most impacted by climate change. And so I was able to help bring that voice. And over a one-year period, we've been able to transition to focus our work and centering the climate action work of these B Corps in climate justice. And what I've really found is I'm definitely not an expert on climate justice at all. 
and looking forward to learning from the folks on our podcast today. But it's really about what does it mean to look at climate action through a justice and an equity lens. And so that's the insight that I'm helping to bring to these businesses and bringing to this work and bringing to this release of this climate justice playbook business that we just released that has more questions than it does answers. And so that's how I was brought to this work. And I think one other thing that's really interesting, as I said, I'm not an expert on climate justice. And I have found that the more that I'm able to bring my whole self into what I'm doing, that's actually even more than enough than anything I've learned in my degree in chemistry or many of the other things that I've learned over time is just my lived experience can provide so much insight into how to address these challenges. Awesome. Thank you, Raj. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy to intellectualize and, you know, I know so many more facts now about climate justice, but I mean, I think it had to be very personal for me. I'm a one and a half generation immigrant. I'm not actually American, and I hold a card that says the word alien on it, you know, which is an interesting way to grow up. I remember I would hang out in my hometown in China with my grandma for the day who lives next to a dump. And as there are high rises around her, I would come home and wash my hands and the water would turn black. And, you know, as my parents went through this sort of like immigrant Reich's richest story, I started feeling more and more of a disconnect from where I had come from and where I was sort of growing into. And I think Tracy also mentioned in college, I took this engineering for a good class and I thought I would spend most of it, you know, building solutions, helping people, doing good. And I had no idea what any of those words meant. And I spent most of the class just even beginning to understand what it was like for a doctor in Dar es Salaam to not have a medical system. And, you know, I spent the last week frantically trying to (laughs) build something after finally having understood a bit more. And still, none of this, you know, I think was enough to really radicalize me. And three years ago, I was watching the story on The Little Prince and unexpectedly, you know, had a mental breakdown. And I didn't even know why. And at that time, I called it a quarter-life crisis. Now I think of it as a quarter-life exploration. And, you know, it led me from thinking climate change is too big for me to do anything to it's too big for me not to do something. And so it was just a very sort of personal thing. And by meeting other people like you all who are doing the work already, I think that really inspired me. And when I think of like, what is climate justice work? I think it's anything that is anti-oppression work because the climate crisis is built on oppression. So how can we solve the symptom without addressing the sickness? And, you know, I think there's a lot of things I do that maybe are not considered direct climate justice work, but, you know, are helping it in some way. Thank you all for sharing your stories. I share the experience that like, Coming to this work is actually really about looking at yourself and what you care about and sort of understanding the different levels and types and shapes and forms of oppression that affect you as an individual. Because I do do think it affects everybody and sort of figuring out like what your sort of lane is. And so, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability in sharing what that journey looked like for you. So I really appreciate that. And I think for listeners, if you're wondering what it looks like to work on climate justice, to work towards climate justice, I think 
it's clear from you know this conversation that it doesn't look any one way and that oftentimes a holistic approach where you're working on a number of projects, some professionally, some as a passion project at different stages of your life with men- and allowing sort of different types of ideas to permeate in your brain and, and all of that, like that's probably what the work looks like and it doesn't have one specific look and feel to it. So I would be curious since all three of you have worked to help others understand climate justice and move into action, all of you in different ways have done that work. What's something that you've learned about the journey that folks go on to becoming a climate justice activist? I'd love to hear what you're seeing in that work. Like what are folks common roadblocks? What are some mindset shifts, misconceptions and aha moments that folks experience on that journey? We can do the same order if that's the case. So Tracy, Raj, then Yang. Yeah, sure. So I teach college students. And so I'm going to share some experiences of how college age students become like activated around climate justice issues. So I think for many of them, they feel enormous grief and sadness and anxiety about what they're seeing. I mean, it's that generation and future generations that are going to be experiencing the brunt of climate impacts. So they're feeling extreme amounts of grief and anxiety and kind of like what you mentioned, Yang, like not knowing if their individual actions can really make a difference. They also see, based on the science, that the leaders in both government agencies, but also in business, are not taking the necessary action in order to fully address climate change, given sort of what they're seeing with the science. And then the other option, which they're also doing as much as as they can in the area of individual action, like what can they do individually to reduce the impact? So anything from riding their bikes, you know, taking public transportation, changing their diets, and you know, turning off the lights. But then they also come to realize that that alone, without addressing some of these broader systemic issues, will also be insufficient. So I think what tends to happen is a kind of a recognition that they can't do this alone, they can't rely fully on government or on business, and that they have to work in community. And I see activism on campus. I'm at the University of California. And over the summer, the University of California became the largest public institution to divest from fossil fuels. That was largely the action and the inspiration coming from students. Also, our climate neutrality goal to be carbon neutral by 2025, also very much inspired by the students. So they're taking action on campus, in their communities, on the streets, and working in larger community spaces and actually having massive impact. So I think that what's really exciting is to see when they turn that grief and anxiety and that fear into massive action that's actually having, certainly, and I can see it having impacts not only on our campus, but across the state. And certainly thinking about young leaders like Greta Thunberg, you know, what we're seeing on the international level. Thank you, Tracy. Yeah, in regards to what I've learned about the journey folks go on to becoming climate justice activists is, you know, there are a number of, I would say, pitfalls in this work. And I would say even as we were developing our own climate justice playbook, we fell into a lot of the same issues. For example, we're interviewing CSR leaders and sustainability folks at all these large companies, and most of them are white. And so we were not centering the voices of the communities that we know are the ones that are helping to inform what needs to be done. 
And so about this work, it's going to be our own journey as much as it's going to be some sort of this external journey. And then being able to name when those, when you come across those same challenges and then being able to address them. And I think like in the realm of business, we're not taught to talk about mistakes or failure or any of these other things. And so it's really dominant within business in particular is that you should know what you're doing, you should know how to get there, and there should be a measurable ROI. And so if we're asking businesses to centering climate justice in their work, it's about rethinking all these things. And in particularly how climate justice is not a, a linear application, it's also highly contextual. And so what you might do in a place like Guyana versus what you might do in a place in California is completely different. And so people are looking for these like very, again, linear processes and being able to apply them in many places. And our party line has been, you know, we've been trying to fight climate for over 50 years and we really haven't gotten that far. And we believe that climate justice is going to get us to where we need to go. And so it's going to require us to be flexible in this way by centering these voices. Yeah. And I just want to echo something about the perfection stopping us or even just the label of what is a climate justice activist. Like, you know, I don't even know if I can put that label on. And um, shout out to Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist, the Bad Activist Collective, for literally putting the word bad in the good work they're doing to show we're not perfect, but we're trying. And, you know, I think there is this danger of like, these words are verbs, like these labels are verbs, and it's easy for them to accidentally become nouns. And, you know, I think there's also this concern as like climate justice becomes a trending term that it's really a practice that can accidentally get commoditized into a posture. And at least for people like me who don't feel like we're necessarily part of an activist community or we're not experts or this is not our full day job type of thing, but it's something we want to do. You know, I think one way to not get tripped up or one thing that's helped me is just forget the labels. Like it's just a practice. It's like just you know, I'm a plant mom. It's like tending to the garden, just trying, showing up with attention and then doing it every day. And I'm actually very inspired by, just to kind of derail a little bit, inspired by Alok Vedmenon, who is a performance activist and gender non-binary person. And, you know, they say our heartbeat is our first protest chant. You know, and I think about that a lot. I think about Leila Saad, who asked us, you know, like, how can I become a good ancestor? And so that helped me go from like, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm just a person, what can I do, to I'm part of a long lineage of ancestors doing this work. You know, this is not my sprint, this is a marathon, and I can just, you know, show up every day and not be afraid to be seen trying. And I think those have helped me get unstuck from the labels. I feel like you all just put me in group therapy. So thanks so much for helping me feel better about <laughs> that everlasting insecurity of like, I'm not doing enough. I'm never doing enough. Imposter syndrome, all of that. I think everything y'all are saying resonates a lot with me about a lot of this work involves letting go of the paradigms that we have about what it means to be successful at something, or even that answers are a thing that we're going to arrive at. You know, when Raj says my playbook invited more questions than answers, like that's what we found with a whole bunch more questions, I think is 
is really important. And in my own organizing practice and activism work, a lot of it is like helping each other and community say like, it's okay to take a step back and give yourself some like nurturing because to give yourself fully to this work all the time and to be constantly measuring yourself against things like, are we going to curb the climate crisis is just like not sustainable. And that a lot of this is like, what are the sort of everyday things and how can you feel good about how you showed up that day? And so thank you for sharing all of that. The next question is, what do you wish all people working on climate change considered or asked themselves and their collaborators? And we can switch up the order. How about we do Raj, then Yang, then Tracy? Thank you. As I've gone through this, and I think, you know, what really pivotal point for me, which I know is almost, I feel almost basic at this point, but understanding my own privilege and what I'm complicit to and understanding the privileges that I benefit from by being Indian American male and not being black or white or any of the other groups that I don't identify with. And I think that that someone has already said it, I believe, is are you willing to do the internal work that's required to be able to really come to this work from a place of your soul? And I think that's the hardest work more than figuring out, like, what do I need to do to center climate justice in my work? Because I think for each of us, it becomes deeply personal. And so I think someone really has to go through a process of asking themselves what's driving them to do this in the first place, in addition to it being the right thing to do, what makes it personal for them. And I think that, you know, we don't allow ourselves to have that, especially when it's, whether even if it's a work or a passion project is like, can you get to that point of just asking yourself, why is it so important to you? And also knowing that I think that the reason evolves over time and to be comfortable with that shifting as well too. And so one thing in the climate justice playbook we do, we have a whole section on the entire personal journey that one should consider and guidebooks that they can consider in doing that, whether it be practices of mindfulness and other things. I think that maybe these things have become more common in business documents, but not as common as I would like to see them. Yeah, I think there's like this term that Raj is talking about, which is like spiritual bypassing. And that can look like a lot of different things. It can look like hiding behind a sense of like positivity or like peacekeeping when we're really here for peacemaking. It can look like, oh, I'm just going to donate here. I'm going to sign this petition. I'm going to do this thing, but like not really tap into why are you doing that? Are you just doing it in this moment or are you doing it over your lifetime? And I think it's, it's also like something that is done collectively. And I think we don't talk about that enough. And I think when I started doing any kind of work, you know, it did feel like a mental health quarter life crisis and it felt very lonely. And then I was like, well, who am I to like presume this work is just on me? Right. And like, let me go find people who are doing this and let me go build relationships with people where we do this as a village. And I think that's definitely helped a lot of just making it personal and like decentering myself. <laughs> and I think the other tricky thing with that is just even the language we use, like the term climate justice may be new, but the work is very old is, you know, decades in the making. And 
you know, it's hard because like Roger's saying too, the language is evolving because we're trying to imagine things that don't exist yet. And so I think some of it is just even knowing that like, like Ken Liu says, every act of communication is an act of translation. So even just coming together, talking to each other, finding ways to talk to each other, whether it's literal translation of one language to another. You know, I had to look up what climate justice is in Chinese, and it's not, it's not a term that people know or use. And so like, what does this look like in a non-Western, non-English context? And how do we like communicate this thing that everyone feels but may have different words for? Thanks so much, Yang. I agree with so much of what's been said. You know, I think climate justice is about, for me, it's definitely a very sort of personal set of actions. It's sort of the way that I I understand the world. It provides a certain alignment and coherence between like what I know is true and what I would like to see in the world. It also sort of aligns like my own life energy and force, how I spend my time what I'd like to see for my community, like sort of a health and security for my community and that the local community to the state where I live, to the nation, to places like Guyana and you know, thinking about the international community. And I think what's important for me, I think why I feel very committed to a climate justice perspective is because it really sort of connects the dots between so many of these social and environmental issues that like you've been saying, Yang, they're not new. Like we've been working toward a certain level of like environmental and social justice historically that goes back, you know, generations. And so we're part of a longer lineage. But I think what is really powerful about climate justice is that because it connects the dots between all of these sort of social and environmental issues that we've been caring about, that we've been working toward, that other communities have been working toward. And like you had mentioned earlier, Raj, like, I mean, some of the issues that facing where I live now in California are very different than the issues facing a country like Guyana. But climate justice unites all of these places. And I think it also takes a systems perspective. There's an alignment between sort of the individual, the community and the world. But then there's also working on these issues across scale. Like what are the types of actions that make sense individually that I can do? What makes sense at a community level? What makes sense in my city? What makes sense at the international at the conference of the parties meetings. And then also how do those types of sort of policies and actions not only address the climate issue, but also address some of these underlying drivers. And so it moves us away from the kind of the technological solutions alone. It moves us away from even some of the policy like solutions alone, that it's a deeply integrative way of thinking about these issues where everyone can see themselves in the solution. So it's not just that, yes, I mean, marginalized people have been largely impacted over long histories of time by some of these, these issues. And there are certain groups of people that continue to benefit from it. There's no doubt about it. And also something like with an issue like climate, it affects everyone in different ways. And I agree with what you had said, Raj, that by really addressing these issues from an equity perspective, that is for me as well, our best bet for solving the climate crisis, because we've been meeting for decades internationally at the climate meetings, you know, the conference of the parties we've been meeting every single year and emissions have only gone up for decades. We've been meeting and emissions have only gone up. They've only started to come down 
last year because of COVID, the only year that we have not actually met for decades. And so clearly, it's not about those meetings. It's about some other action. And my hope is that COVID has provided enough of some space for us to really rethink our development model, our model for well-being. And it's causing us to sort of question the way forward and the kind of life and livelihood and how we want to sort of organize our society in ways that it's more aligned with a climate justice model. It's more aligned with kind of health and vitality and resilience for communities and for environments. Awesome. I, you know, just want to highlight that something I think has come up in all three of your answers is that this discussion of what climate justice even is, is just, it's such an umbrella term. You know, I've seen a visual from Organizing Cools the Planet, this like zine about climate justice. The visual is like, there's a giant river that says climate justice and all of the little tributaries coming off of it are like names of other social movements that sort of feed in into the groundswell. And so that's what I like to think of when I look at it. And you just want to plug that for the workshop, the University of California Center for Climate Justice, which, which Tracy, the director for, offered four different pillars of climate justice to sort of name the different shapes and forms that this work can take. A just transition, nature-based solutions, indigenous climate action, and community resilience and adaptation. And so I think, you know, for listeners to just sort of contextualize, though all of those different concepts can and are talking about climate justice in some shape or form. And I think it's exciting to sort of think about in different places in the world, which we've talked about, how are those sort of different concepts coming up and, and taking form? Raj, I know you have to run soon. If it's okay, we'd love to ask the question that was specifically for you. And that question is, with the business leaders that you've talked with, could you talk about two key challenges that they're struggling with in shifting their business models? So could you highlight some of the systemic or structural changes, for example, in policies or politics or culture or really anything that needs to happen to support these shifts that these brave business leaders are trying to take on? Thank you. We have a list of uh, eight insights, eight obstacles, and eight questions. And so much of this is about listening and not having the answer. And I want to be considerate of what the wonderful folks that I'm on the call with and have said already, so I'm not repeating what they said or what I said earlier about businesses. So I think the listening is essential. And I think that that's not accustomed to what the way of business, which is very entrenched in business behaviors that are paternalistic and colonialist. And so how do you overcome that? And how do you get rewarded if you're in a position where you have a certain amount of autonomy, but not a full amount of autonomy, and you're also being evaluated based on your performance? So the system itself doesn't allow for a person to really be able to explore these models. And so I think that if I were to think about the two biggest things is just having the opportunity to listen more so than having the answers. Second, understanding that the quote-unquote solution is going to be highly contextual and you can't, especially if you're a global entity, you're not going to be able to deploy the same thing in all places, which makes it really hard to scale and to consider what needs to be done there. And then third is there's not enough models and also enough accountability for which people can base their performance on. And most of business is based on performance. And so what we're trying to identify is how can we develop through this playbook and collaborations with the folks that are on the call, how can we develop something that people can start to help maneuver themselves through climate justice, in which they can be accountable to 
either to, you know, the community at large that's helping to move climate justice forward and or to other businesses, because we know that they are really influenced by their peers. So how do we get them to think creatively about what they might be able to do? And I really think that some of the things that Tracy and Yang have said about bringing their whole selves and how this is a really holistic process actually provides a whole opportunity for creativity in a way that actually I hadn't really thought about before. And I think the term creativity gets somehow mixed up with innovation and there and starts to lose its like emotion or energy or even lived experience that helps to drive what could be unique in a specific place that could really have a really big impact. I think the other part that is, is like, can business come to terms with the fact that they are the greatest contributor to climate change and to know that so much of what they've been doing for the last 50 years actually hasn't made much of a difference. And so how do you make sure that they continue to do what they're doing, but also bring in, and what I mean by that is putting resources towards addressing climate change, specifically from a carbon lens, but also really embracing this with the same amount of resources at the same time. Awesome. So excited for all business leaders everywhere to get a hold of these frameworks and excited to be part of spreading the gospel of that work. Raj, the last thing is what call to action do you have for listeners? So what's a call to action? What are things that people can do? And so uh, one thing is really important is collaboration. Uh, Really look at ways that you can potentially partner with other businesses in the communities that you're working with to think about what you can do in your community. We also ask a number of questions, which is, how are you currently working with your suppliers? What work have you begun with employees and their families? How have you engaged your leadership teams? Which grassroots experts have you connected with in your contacts? What industry collaborations could you explore? How are you making space at company events? And where are you with your customers? And so there's a lot of things that you can do to just by asking yourself some questions to get started, but you also should come to this workshop on March 13th and learn from these wonderful people that I'm going to learn from. Like, even though I'm not going to be on the recording part of this, I want to hear you all so I can learn from you. I've learned so much from you just in the 35 minutes that we've had together. But yeah, please join. And do know that there are scholarships for people that can't pay the full fee. This is a really accessible program and we're really grateful to be a partner in it. Thank you, Raj. Thank you so much. Okay, Tracy. How have you seen climate justice as a movement shift and change through your career and your activism journey? And what do you see next on the horizon? Mm -hmm. I would say that I've certainly seen kind of some of the earlier discussions of climate justice, particularly coming from the global South, speaking to issues of sort of vulnerability, responsibility, the countries that are most responsible for climate change mostly countries of the global north and the countries mostly vulnerable to the climate change impacts being those associated with the global south, but also questions of development rights. The fact that our economic growth is so tightly linked to carbon emissions, developing countries also having the ability to develop their economies as countries of the global north. So some of those earlier conversations being around historical responsibility, vulnerability, and development rights. There's also kind of a movement around, I would say, political economy and markets, carbon markets. What are some of the impacts of 
carbon markets, particularly in forests? How do they affect local communities and indigenous communities? Aligned with that, also a recognition that we actually have to address the real drivers of climate change, which are fossil fuels and calls for leaving fossil fuels underground. Standing Rock, you know, I mean, that's a really clear example. That was definitely a, advocating for protection of water and about keeping fossil fuels underground, given that, you know, where we are, and, and again, the science being very clear on the importance of keeping fossil fuels underground if we're going to keep global temperatures below the 1.5 degrees Celsius that the IPCC is really clear on. We have to leave a lot of those fossil fuels underground. And so climate justice has been certainly a social movement as well as a discourse. And so academics are now starting to sort of talk about some of what like activists and the social movement has been the work that's been going on for a very long period of time. I would say that sort of more recently, we've been hearing more about just transitions and the Green New Deal. And so these types of policies that are not only about climate action, but it's also about shifting our economies toward renewable energy. It's about dealing with environmental injustices. It's about employment. And it's also sort of looks at how these policies play out across scale. So there are proposals for Green New Deals at levels of cities, but also at nations. And even the, the UN has talked about it's kind of an international process around the Green New Deal. So I would say that in terms of the next horizon, like where do I see this work going? Certainly being really clear about the linkages with climate justice and racial justice and other forms of social injustice and rectifying that. But I think also it's kind of like what we've been talking about. It's connecting the dots between these various forms of social and environmental crises. It's about aligning and a coherence between sort of what we feel sort of individually and on an internal level with what the kind of the world that we want to see. So I would say that it's connecting the dots between these issues. It's also sort of working collaboratively across sort of policymakers, private sector, universities, community organizations, indigenous leaders, philanthropists, like really sort of working in a very collaborative way around some of these issues because we don't know one group has the answer. And it's really in collaboration that we'll get closer to solving this issue. Awesome. Thank you for that. Really holistic and abridged history. <laughs> it's going to be really helpful to contextualize for folks. Okay. Yang, how do we take this large global problem that's so much bigger than us and make it part of our personal practice to work towards climate justice? Yeah. So this is the question that kept me up last night. <laughs> and I think I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about questions and questioning the stories we tell ourselves. I want to talk about power and our place in power. And Raj mentioned this earlier, creativity. I want to talk about imagination. So I think the first thing is like questions. I have lots of questions <laughs> all the time. And I think one way to notice that I was like personally changing by trying to climate justice work, i.e. any collective liberation work, was I noticed the questions I was asking were different. And the stories I was telling myself about what's going on in the world started to change. And so I think there's this thing of like, what kind of questions are you asking now that you haven't asked before? Like, what is normal to you and what is it? Where do you see space for complexity and nuance that you couldn't see before? You know, I think it's like a lot of these systemic issues, like Tracy said, it's the water. It's like the air, like both literally and metaphorically. And if you 
don't see it, you don't know it at all. But when you do see it, it's like everywhere. And so, you know, when I think about that, I'm like, who am I listening to? How has my default programming been harmful, regardless of my intent? And how do I keep myself accountable? And when I think about how to answer that question, I think about power. And I think about how I'm both participating in power, I have power, and there's power held over me. And, you know, like Raj said, it's a very personal thing. There are places where I have hard power, where I'm part of decision making. There are places where I have soft power, where I have influence. There are places where there's power over me in terms of explicit racism I've experienced or sexism, things like that. And so I think about how am I reallocating my power and my resources and my privilege? And what does that look like in the spheres that I know? So, you know, I come from data, I come from tech in terms of my work. And so when I think about data, well, what is data equity? I think about data portraits by Dubois. I think about data for Black lives. I think about the We All Count data equity project. And when I think about tech, like what is tech equity? I think about, am I reading TechCrunch, which is, you know, what everyone tech reads? Or am I reading Logic Magazine? Issue nine is on nature and climate and how that relates to tech. You know, I think about Ruha Benjamin, who wrote The New Gym Code and how tech is perpetuating that. And I also think about places like Block Power, where <laughs> where Alyssa is now. And, you know, it doesn't have to be in your work, right? It could be power that you have in the communities and places you love. I've been drinking tea this whole time, and I love Gong Fu Cha tea. And, you know, there's this community called Activist Tea House. And one of our five pillars is environmental awareness because what I've learned in a decade and a lifelong student of tea is by drinking tea, I learn about the world. I learn about how tea financed the expansion of the British Empire. <laughs> I learned about through tea how capitalism was built on exploitation of labor. You know, I didn't expect those things, but in anything you love, you can figure out where that power is um, and what you can do about it. You know, I think about where I live. I live on Ohlone land and, you know, it's almost tax season, which I need to get to. But as part of that, if I'm going to pay the federal government, I can pay a rematriation land tax. I can pay, you know, where I am, the Segorite land trust, the Shumi land tax. I can contribute to my organizations in Oakland, like Planting Justice, my local publications like the Leaflet, my local coalitions like the Oakland Chinatown Coalition. And that's shifting resources, you know, away from me. And, you know, I think the last point is just imagination and creativity. And when I think about that, I think about how as a kid, I loved fantasy and I thought I was the perfect person to love sci-fi because I was like, I love technology. I love stories. I love imagining. Like, I am the perfect person to love sci-fi. And when I tried to read sci-fi, I didn't like sci-fi at all. And I was like, what's going on? Like, I'm supposed to love sci-fi. And I realized, you know, I was reading these, like, old 1970s space operas from white men who had passed away who I had zero connection with. And the future they were imagining was full of guns and spaceships and just aliens killing each other. 
And that didn't feel very liberating to me. And I just want to call out there's like a golden age of sci-fi and fantasy right now. You know, Nettie Okorafor with her Afrofuturistic stories of Binti, Folding Beijing, which is a short story by um, Hao Jingfang, uh, first Chinese woman to win the, the Galaxy Award. And, you know, I think about how there are people out there who are imagining and reimagining what society could look like. And I think that is what climate justice is in its actual solutions, is reimagining what society could look like. And so when I think about like what we can do, you know, I just think about like, what are the questions I can ask myself? What are the stories I'm telling myself and how are those shifting? How do I remove power from myself where it needs to go? And how do we be imaginative about the solutions that we're participating in? And I think at the end of the day, this is more just a reminder to myself at this point is I really need to go take a nap <laughs> after this. <laughs> and, you know, just again, realizing that we're human, my pulse is still up, just very nervous and excited talking and listening to you all here. And sometimes we just need to take a nap. So I'll just end <laughs> on that. <laughs> wow. Yang. That was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. I know that you dug around a lot in your brain and also really deep in your brain to come up with such specific and wide-reaching recommendations and, and the framework that you used is awesome. So thank you so much. Okay, well then, choose your own adventure. How about the last two questions I'll offer and both of you can answer either or, or both. One is what would redressal of past injustice really look like? Like, you know, to Yang's point, when we think imaginatively, what does an ideal world scenario actually look like where justice has been delivered? Question one. And then question two is what call to action do you have for listeners? And so, Tracy, if you want to go first, and then I'll end with Yang. Yeah, okay. Well, I loved, Yang, how you emphasize the importance of imagination and also these types of futuristic kind of sci-fi, especially by women of color. It kind of reminds me of, I've been you know, reading Adrienne Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy, and she's very much influenced by Octavia Butler's work. And so I agree. I think we can draw on some of the past, but we're not going backwards. We're looking into the future. And so how do we draw on some of the, the lessons from the past and some of the ways in which local communities, indigenous communities have operated and cared for the land and their resources, but also recognizing that we're in the 21st century and it's a different world. And so one of the questions you asked, like, is it a pipe dream? I mean, it's certainly not clear or easy. What are all of the various steps? But I think there are certain elements that are really important places to start. And so I mentioned indigenous local people because we often talk about the Anthropocene, you know, this kind of geologic age where that recognizes the impact that humans have had on the planet. And I, I always want to remember, and also some of the work of indigenous scholar um, Kyle White reminds us that it's not humans, it's a particular political economic system and also a system of inequity and supremacy that has really driven this moment of the Anthropocene. So I would say that one of the ways in which we might redress some of these issues is to provide indigenous communities and local communities with land and, and resources. So returning those land and resources to communities that 
have been impacted by colonialism and imperialism. And also there are, yes, it's the right thing to do in terms of equity, but it also has important climate benefits. You know, when indigenous peoples have their land tenure recognized, they're actually more effective at protecting their land and deforestation rates are three to four times lower than similar land under state or private control. And indigenous and community lands account for about 300 billion metric tons of carbon in trees and soil. So this is significant. Yes, it's the equitable thing to do, but it also has a major climate impacts. I think also if we look at the way that our current political economic system still rewards fossil fuels and supports fossil fuels, in 2017, fossil fuel subsidies were about 5.2, according to the IMF, an IMF report, it was $5.2 trillion with a T. And this was 2017, two years after the Paris Agreement. And so really thinking about shifting those subsidies toward renewable energy and toward climate justice are also really key. Thinking about things like carbon taxes, carbon taxes and dividend that where marginalized communities can be supported in dealing with the tax burden. And so this is just the tip of the iceberg. These are just a handful of ways in which we could start to shift the, the political economic systems in ways that can have provide for greater equity and justice across these various scales. And just sort of lastly, in terms of what's the call of action, like what we might ask folks to do. I mean, I loved that. I think both Yang and, and Raj have mentioned the importance of collaborations and alliance building. So I would say working with local communities, working with local organizations or private sector entities that are aligned with climate justice, and really thinking about what are the support networks and systems that allow you to do your work properly. What are the policies, the state and local policies that are necessary for you to be able to realize climate justice where you live? And also voting and supporting candidates who are committed to certainly climate action, but particularly climate justice. Amazing. Thank you, Tracy. Yeah. I mean, I think Tracy already said everything. You know, I was even taking notes when she was talking. So I feel like she talked a lot about like, what does this look like on that systems level, on that holistic level? And I think I'll just bring it back to what does it look like on a personal level? What does it look like to start not just reimagining? And I think, you know, we talked about imagination of solutions, collective liberation, you know, local grassroots efforts, but also creating, like creating the world you're imagining. And how can we shift ourselves personally from consuming to creating, whether it's for the planet, for ourselves, for our communities, and imagination is just the first step towards creating the world we want to live in. You know, it doesn't have to be a tangible output like the climate justice, you know, one-on-one guide we're working on. It can be something that looks like creating a more resilient relationship. You know, I think a litmus test of how close you are is, can you talk to your friends? Can you talk to your loved ones? Can you talk to your partner about climate justice? what that looks like in your own lives with each other. And, you know, creating could be creating a way to use your privilege and power, like we talked about earlier. It can also be just creating less harm. And, you know, I think I've had to think about how am I harmful by default because I've grown up in a society that is structurally harmful by default. And so it's very active to try to not do that. 
And again, I think even if there's no intent to be harmful, there could be an outcome or an impact of harm. And so what does it look like to, you know, make sure I'm not doing that? And, you know, when I think about another way of creating, it could just be creating more control over things that you think are happening to you and creating a different story, which is I'm going to take an active role in my life. And this could look like something very simple. You know, I think for me and maybe for other people out there, a lot of us are just doom scrolling on our social media feeds. It's infinite. And, you know, I think as someone who works on algorithms and, you know, these like systems of technology, machine learning, a lot of times people talk about, oh, the algorithm is feeding it to me. And when I think about that, I think about, well, one thing, you know, I started doing is let me change the story. Let me take control of my feed. Let me teach the algorithms what I care about so that they can show me more of what I need to see. Shout out to all of these accounts, Decolonial Atlas, Seeding Sovereignty, Farmer Rishi, Nature Boignell, Dine Aesthetics, Disability Visibility, Elwing Bling, Black Girl Environmentalist, Decolonize Myself, just to begin. And, you know, I think at first I was like, I'm not part of any of these activist communities or movements, or I don't know anybody, you know, quote unquote, grassroots. I'm just over here being, you know, a data engineer. But when you start, when you start to teach the algorithms what you care about, the algorithms learn to show you more of that. And that was very helpful for me. So, you know, now when I'm scrolling through social media, I don't consider it a waste of my time. I consider it part of my just daily education. You know, I wake up and I'm getting educated. And when I think about my email, like, oh, I'm so behind on email. There's all these emails (laughs) and they're all just like ads. (laughs) I think about, well, I can choose what to subscribe and unsubscribe to. What does my email look like right now is very different from what it looked like last year versus three years ago. And that's because I'm choosing to subscribe to different people choosing to subscribe to One Anti-Racist Action a Day by Letitia Thomas and Amy Wibowo and committing to doing that every day. I think another big one people hear about is Anti-Racism Daily by Nicole Cardoza, Heated by Emily Watkins. There's a lot that we can decide to put in our inboxes and you know there's a lot we can remove from our inboxes. And so I think from that sense, when we think about creating, it can look like a lot of these different things. And I think on a personal level, for me, creating those relationships, creating uh, with community, creating a different social media feed, or even creating a different inbox, creating less harm are all just, you know, personal ways of creating a world that I, I can imagine is slightly better than what we have today. Thank you, Yang, for schooling us on how to be intentional in every possible way. I am so inspired by you and your wonderful, so thoughtful answers. Like I'm telling you, you're going to help so many people. So thank you so much for dropping your wisdom on us. Thank you for having me. This was really an enlightening, inspiring, insightful conversation. I feel more intentional and, and grounded and aligned just listening to all three of you. So I'm really so grateful for all three of our brilliant guests for sharing their perspectives with us. Yeah, and we hope you yeah. we hope you learn from this and that you'll come to the workshop and, and learn more. So thank you very much. If you enjoyed these conversations, we invite you to dig in deeper with our weekend workshop 
on March 13th and March 14th. Our Introduction to Climate Justice Workshop will be an interactive action and community-oriented experience where we'll dive further into these topics, learn from experts, brainstorm solutions, develop personal climate justice action plans, and find collaborators and community in this critical work. Tracy and Raj will be presenting and answering questions, and Yang's Climate Justice Learning Group will share more about their project and how to get involved. You can find links to sign up for the workshop, as well as links to the B Corp Climate Collective, Climate Justice Playbook for Business, and the Work on Climate Group's Climate Justice 101 Guide in our show notes, as well as links to the references that our wonderful speaker shared. So thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you at the workshop.